0: from the heart of our nation's capital here's family research council president tony perkins
1: welcome to washington watch i'm joseph backholm sitting in for tony today thrilled that you are with us you give us an hour and we give you a better understanding of the nation's capital and the world from a christian world view Quick announcement before we get to the program today. Primary elections are today in both Florida and New York. If you live in either of those states, we encourage you, while there is still time and there is, make sure you vote. And If you need help knowing who to vote for that shares your values, you can visit FRCaction.org for voter resources and also a voter guide at iVoterGuide.com. Both great places we come to you for really quick information about who to vote for today on the show a couple of recent court cases could require religious schools to abide by federal rules related to sex and gender what would that mean for christian schools will those decisions stand on appeal we'll talk about it in addition cases of monkeypox have now been discovered in every state in the country how concerned should you be we'll talk about that a little later also there's a lot of pressure these days for Christians to hide. Dr. Erwin Lutzer has written a book in which he says that's not the right response. He'll stop by later in the program for what is sure to be an informative and engaging conversation. But our headline today, President Biden is expected to reveal tomorrow his longstanding plan to eliminate some student loan debt. While nothing is confirmed, reports indicate that he plans to cancel up to $10,000 in student loan debt for anyone making less than $125,000 a year, an estimated cost of $330 billion. How will this affect the average American taxpayer? Who will fit the bill? Joining me now to discuss this is economist Stephen Moore who is a senior fellow at FreedomWorks and co-founder of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Stephen, good to see you today. Hi, Joseph. What's your reaction to this news? I know there's been a lot of chatter about this. It's not completely surprising. But what's your economist response to this idea that President Biden is going to cancel up to $10,000 in student loan debt?
0: Well, even the way you put it, you know, is sort of playing into the hands of the enemy when you say cancel the debt. The debt doesn't really get canceled. It just means they shift the debt off of the backs of the people who took out the loans to you and me and everyone else who's a taxpayer. I think it's outrageous. I think it's an injustice. I think it is rewarding people for bad behavior. If you have a debt, you don't repay it. We used to call those kind of people deadbeats. <laughs> and so the idea that we're teaching a whole generation that you don't have to pay back your debts is is just, I think, irresponsible. But more importantly, it's completely unfair to the people who did pay back their student loans the way an upstanding person would do. If, if you loan me money I, and I agree to pay you back, I should pay you back the money. And so uh, given the fact that we already have a $24 trillion national debt, the idea of adding $300 billion more debt is um, astonishingly fiscally imprudent
1: well i accept your correction on the phrasing of my of my question <laughs>
0: yeah. now it's a taxpayer this bailout a- it's a taxpayer bailout that's what we should call it
1: yeah, that, that's fair. And, and and we have experienced bailouts in, in, in different contexts. And so we are familiar with that. But I think that is that is helpful phrasing to understand what we're doing in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like we bailed out banks who we decided were too big exactly. to bail. But that's certainly not the problem uh, necessarily of these uh, student loan holders, uh, but we are bailing them out uh, to be sure. Why has this become, and it has become, a huge issue on the left? For years, there's been this drumbeat uh, for this cancellation of student debt. In your judgment, how did that become such a hot topic on the left?
0: What the left wants, they wanted this for for 25 years, is free college. They want uh, the taxpayers to pay for everyone's college. And this is a big, big step in that direction. I mean, Joseph, think about this. If the president goes through with this policy, how many people in the future do you think will ever pay repay a student loan it's, it's a well, fair question zero. yeah right. zero the answer is zero no you'd be a fool to play back pay back your loan if the government's going to uh forgive you for the debt so i don't know if so but they understand that they're not this stupid they what they essentially want is for everybody to just have free college education and taxpayers pay for it. You think college is expensive now, which it is, every college in America should cost about half of what it does. If you have the taxpayers paying the tab, you're going to see tuitions go to you know $100,000 a year. So this is part of this industrial complex between the big universities, the left, which wants everybody to uh, have these, uh, quote, free college educations, and then kids come out with uh, degrees in sociology and ethnic studies and and philosophy and things that they can't get a job for. And so um, it's uh, it's you can tell I'm angry about it because I think it's just really unfair to the people who did do the stand up thing and, and you know, made the financial sacrifice to, to do what's right. And that is to pay back the money that they owe. Uh, Stephen, as someone
1: with a sociology degree as an undergraduate, I accept that correction <laughs> as well. No, uh, it wasn't right. necessarily a great right, plan. Right. <laughs> well, but law no, school helped, but once you get a sociology now. degree, you've got to do something else. But uh, it's uh, that's a, a a good word of wisdom to those out there considering their future. But Stephen, not everybody is as pessimistic about this. Uh, Representative Jamal Bowman thinks this is precisely the thing that the economy needs right now. Let's play clip one.
2: If we cancel student debt outright or a large chunk of it,
1: people will then
2: feel more confident
1: in starting families or investing in the market or starting their own businesses and would really inject capital into the economy, which is what we need now uh, at this
0: time. Stephen Moore, what's your reaction to that? First of all, you know, one of the first rules of life is you never want to reward bad behavior, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. You don't reward bad behavior. It's bad behavior if you don't pay, pay back the loan that you owe. And what kind of lesson and are we teaching people? I mean, my goodness, by that logic of that congressman, you know, I shouldn't have to pay back my mortgage. Think about that. I might be able to start a business if I didn't have to pay my mortgage or if I didn't have to pay my credit card debt. I mean, th- th- this is... Um, I think, very illogical argument. Um, And I think that uh, we need. Now, look, I do think college is way, way too expensive. And if we're going to if why should the taxpayers be on the hook for this? If the people are who are kind of um, collaborators in this scam are the universities themselves, the universities should pay the money back, not the not the taxpayers. And that leads to an interesting
1: question because there, right now, there's one and a half trillion dollars in student loan debt in America. That's a huge number. And there are a lot of people saddled by student loan debt. One of the little known facts about student loan debt is that it is not dischargeable in bankruptcy, which means when the government guarantees that the payment to these universities and those debts are not dischargeable, there is no risk the, to the institutions for taking unqualif- uh, uh, barely or unqualified students giving them degrees in something exactly. that will not likely lead to a an income that can return on that investment right. but the university is guaranteed its money nonetheless do you think the situation could be improved if there was a change in the law that allowed that required universities to consider the risk that they were taking in giving students these degrees and these loans to make sure that we are we may not make these loans if they can't pay them back
0: uh yeah i'd be interested in that kind of proposal um, I, I would propose three things. Number one, um, there's a very solution, simple solution to the issue of how we have we pay for college. Every college student should work 20 hours a week. And if they work 20 hours a week while they're in school, then God knows college students have nothing but time on their hands. They would be much more productive. And, we, you know, we wouldn't have to. Are you familiar with a, a school called College of the Ozarks? I sure am. And I love it very much yeah so why can 't every college be like that where you work the, for people who don 't know what i 'm talking about that 's a school where the tuition is zero because every student pays for their own tuition by working. I mean my gosh, these are twenty one and twenty two year old kids The idea that they can 't work twenty hours a week uh, whether they 're too busy at the fraternity parties and, and and getting drunk and on the weekends and so on they could do it and by the way, there 's an old saying uh, I think it might be Ben Franklin, but you know anything easily attained is lightly regarded. And the best way to make sure the kids are getting a good education and they're getting their money's worth is to make them work to get the education.
1: I think that's a really good point, you know, and I am the father of a high school senior now, and we are having these conversations because the return on investment in many people's experience on college is not good. And so one of the reasons to make that return on investment better is to make sure that uh, the cost is low. Uh, It certainly has advantages, but not at any cost. Now, Stephen, is it too cynical to think that this might be in part an election ploy? because we are now months away from a midterm election uh is that ha- is that relevant in any way to this do you think
0: yeah i get it i've been get it. i've been asked that question a lot today as the president's announcement was made and i think yes i do believe the democrats think this is a way to win votes but i got to tell you something joseph People are really, really angry about this. This is an extremely unpopular idea with most Americans who believe in justice, who believe in fair play, who believe that you don't reward people for bad behavior. Yeah. It's, the, it's totally contrary to sort of the American ideal. So I yeah. think it's going to, if it is being done for political purposes, I think it's going to boomerang against the Democrats.
1: And, and Stephen, to that point, I, I know that there's this sense, This the argument has been made That people who go to college they have a higher than average income, and therefore they are in a better position to pay these bills. And what we're doing here is we're actually shifting that burden to those who do not have a college degree, who actually have lower incomes. Is that a fair
0: description of what's happening here? It sure is. I meant. Thank you for bringing that up. I meant to mention it and I forgot. But that's a really key point. The the left loves to talk about fairness. Um, They're basically taxing. Middle-income blue-collar workers, many of whom didn't go to college, and those those people have to then subsidize, you know, people oftentimes from upper-middle-income and even wealthy families for their student tuition. It, it's it's completely unfair. It's like Robin Hood in reverse, where <laughs> robbing the poor yeah. to pay the rich. Stephen Moore.
1: When do we run out of money? We have all of this debt already. We've spent an additional what 7 trillion dollars I think since 2000 on the national debt and now we're just deciding to um, to to shift the burden and let the taxpayers take on uh this student these private student loans for people. Is there any end in sight?
0: Uh, this is the thing that's keeping me up at night, Joseph, you know, as a fiscal policy expert. You know, we have this laughable behavior, uh, you know, um, theory that came out of the left a few years ago, something called um, modern monetary theory. Have you ever heard of that? Yes, but I'm not an economist, so I'm going to okay, let yeah. you explain so, it. So modern monetary theory is a laughable, idiotic theory that we, can, the U.S. government can just borrow and borrow and borrow and spend whatever it wants. Right. And anybody with a sixth grade education knows that's a foolish and dangerous concept, And but the Democrats have embraced it. And they really believe this. That's why you played that clip from the congressman. We could just spend and spend and spend and give people money, and it's going to stimulate the economy. They really believe that. And, of course, I think most rational people know that is a road to ruin. So I'm extremely nervous about what they're doing to our economy. You're right. Just since 2000, we've added six or seven trillion dollars to our debt. Just in the last three weeks, they just passed a 600 billion dollar spending bill. Now they want 300 billion more. Last year, uh, Biden uh, spent and borrowed three trillion. These numbers are so large, people's heads are probably spinning around. But it is going to bankrupt this great country of ours if we can't stay on this path.
1: Stephen Moore, Freedom Works. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up next, another troubling story is a tax-exempt status, a form of federal financial assistance. A Couple of lower courts seem to think so. What does that mean for religious institutions? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
3: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible.
2: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, City of California today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Two federal courts recently determined that tax exempt status is a form of federal financial assistance, which would require thousands of schools to follow federal guidelines regarding sex and gender for the first time. What does this mean in practice? Will religious schools be required to comply with pronoun requirements? Will they be required to comply with allowing boys to compete in girls' sports in integrated locker rooms. Joining me now to discuss this is Greg Baylor, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Religious Schools at Alliance Defending Freedom. Greg, good to see you today. Good to be back with you, Joseph. Well, it's good to have you. Give us first a little background
5: on these cases that led to this decision. Sure, Um, there's one case in California, one case in Maryland. In the California case, a Christian high school declined to play a tackle football game against another school that had a girl on its team. Uh, This girl and her parents were apparently unhappy with that and they retained an attorney and sued the Christian school. Now, they were looking for a legal theory and they wanted to allege that the school had discriminated against her on the basis of sex. And normally Title IX, which is a ban on sex discrimination, would not apply to this school. Why not? Because Title IX only applies to those schools that get quote, federal financial assistance. And this school received no federal money of any kind other than tax exempt status, which we'll get to in a second. In the Maryland case, there were a group of girls who had attended a private religious school and the allegations in their complaint say that they suffered from sexual harassment and sexual assault at their school. They also were looking for a legal theory to assert against the school. They wanted to assert Title IX sex discrimination, but they faced the same problem as the football playing girl out in California, which was that this private school isn't really subject to Title IX because it doesn't get any money from the federal government. So they too came up with this creative argument that the school's possession of tax exempt status makes them subject to Title IX.
1: Well, my first reaction to some of those facts is that it's interesting that they seem to be implying that the federal government could require boys to play in a football game that they were uncomfortable with for some reason. And that seems like a a strange power for the federal government to have. But nevertheless, the, the, the argument, the conclusion of the courts, if I understand this right, is they said it is a federal benefit for them
5: to be tax exempt. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly what they concluded. They said that merely possessing tax-exempt status is no different than getting a grant or a loan or a scholarship, you know, actual dollars flowing from the federal government to the educational institution. This is virtually unprecedented. The Department of Justice's own uh, guidelines for this sort of thing say the tax-exempt status is not federal financial assistance and thus does not trigger all the obligations that come with Title IX. And as you well know, there are a number of schools uh, at, you know, prominently, prominent schools at the higher ed level like Hillsdale and Grove City that have explicitly and ex- and intentionally denied or refused to take federal money because they wanted to avoid all the obligations and red tape that come with Title IX. So, and then there are thousands of K through 12 private schools who have no connection with the federal government other than their possession of tax exempt status. So this is a truly unprecedented, shocking decision.
1: And one of the things that's concerning about this, of course, is because the First Amendment, uh, this this wall of separation of church and state that we hear so much about, that it's used to 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 um, try to stop the christians and the church from influencing the public square what we certainly know it exists to do is to stop the the state from micromanaging the government and or the, the the government from micromanaging the church and how it operates this seems to be something of an end around of the first amendment where it says well because you're tax exempt therefore the government has the right to regulate how a religious organization operates is that a fair interpretation
5: Well, they're certainly making an end around what Congress intended. It's it's very clear that Congress did not intend when it wrote the words federal financial assistance into the statute. They didn't intend for every private school in the country to be governed by Title IX. Now, one of the good things about Title IX is that it does have a very robust religious exemption, which does reflect, of course, First Amendment principles. But schools like these shouldn't have to invoke the religious exemption because they're not subject to Title IX in the first place. This just creates more litigation and liability risk, not just for religious private schools, but for non religious private schools as well. Now, I understand we're talking about
1: Title IX in education right now, but if this uh, precedent were to stand up upon review, Do churches themselves uh, face a potential threat because they have tax-exempt status, and therefore that would be seen as a financial
5: benefit from the government? Yes, they are, because uh, Title IX is not the only statute uh, that uh, imposes a non-discrimination obligation on recipients of, quote, federal financial assistance. There are a multitude of statutes that have that trigger on them. Uh, The Rehabilitation Act, Section 504 of it. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Age Discrimination Act of 1975. These are statutes that churches and most schools have never bothered to think about because they've never been subject to them. Now, hopefully these two decisions will be reversed on appeal, and this sort of reasoning won't spread to other uh, states and other jurisdictions, but we'll just have to watch and see if it plays out that way.
1: And Greg, in our final minute, tell us a bit about that. What is the schedule? What is your expectation in these two independent cases that apparently considering the same question?
5: Yeah, well, in the Maryland case, the school asked the judge to reconsider. And most of the time when you ask a judge to reconsider a decision, tell them, hey, you got it wrong. They normally don't grant you that opportunity. I was encouraged to see that the district court judge in Maryland did agree to hold a hearing and reconsider this decision. There was a a friend of the court brief filed uh, by a number of associations of private schools saying, judge, please reconsider, don't do that. That's gonna happen on September 1st. And unfortunately, the California case won't be able to move as quickly. So it might be quite some time until the Ninth Circuit reviews that court's decision. But we'll pray that these appellate courts will get it right, or even that the district courts will change their mind.
1: And we will pray with you. Greg Baylor, Alliance Defending Freedom. Thanks for stopping by today. Thanks,
5: Joseph. Good to see you.
1: Coming up next, cases of monkeypox have now been confirmed in all 50 states. How concerned should you be? We'll tell you all about it when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
6: Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for County today. Is monkeypox here to stay? That's the question epidemiologists and public health officials are forced to consider as the CDC confirmed this week the virus has hit all 50 states. This comes amid increasing concerns. The Biden administration has missed its window to prevent a full-scale outbreak. So far, the virus has been overwhelmingly limited to the group currently described as, quote, men who have sex with men. Has the continued spread increased its chances of infecting everyone else? How concerned should we be for our own health? Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Amish Adolja, Senior Scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Dr. Adolja, welcome to Washington Watch.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Good to have you. Now, first, tell us what monkeypox is. We've heard about it, but most of us are pretty unfamiliar.
7: Monkeypox is a virus that is very closely related to smallpox, which was a virus that was a scourge of of humankind for centuries and was eradicated from the planet. Monkeypox is something that was discovered in the 1950s. It was discovered in monkeys, although monkeys are not really part of the life cycle of this virus. And the first human cases started to occur in in the 1970s. And it really has been confined to about six countries or so in Central and Western Africa. And we would occasionally get importations into into other countries. <clears throat> the disease is characterized by a fever and a rash. So people have a very characteristic rash uh, with monkeypox. It isn't something that has a very high fatality rate and it's not very contagious outside of close contact or contact with whatever animal reservoir this virus resides in. And and this is something that we have vaccines that can be used. We've got antivirals, we have tests. It's just, uh, it's just been, difficult to deploy them effectively and competently in this outbreak, which has spread wider and farther than it ever has before.
1: And let's talk a bit about that. You you mentioned there that it's been around for decades for sure, but the, the spread that we're seeing globally now is, is wider than what we've seen. It seems to have been controlled in the past. What is it that led to the outbreak that we are now seeing?
7: The best estimate for what happened is that this virus found itself in a social sexual network of men who have sex with men. And that's allowed the virus to take advantage of close contact between individuals to spread. It's not that the virus got a new capacity. It's just that it found itself in a, in a, in a hospitable environment to spread. And that's what's happened. And you have to recall that early in the early days of this outbreak, many of the cases were misdiagnosed or there was delayed diagnosis because the virus was masquerading as a sexually transmitted infection. And that allowed the virus to get a head start. And we've been playing catch up ever since. So it's really the social network, the network effects, as well as the fact that it was being misdiagnosed as a sexually transmitted infection.
1: And explain that difference. You say it's been misdiagnosed as a sexually transmitted infection. If that is not what it is, yet is predominant within the category of men who have sex with men, how would you categorize it?
7: So when I say misdiagnosed as a sexually transmitted infection, what I mean is that in the past, monkeypox has usually been a travel-related infection. It's not something that presented with lesions in the genital region. So if you're a doctor working in a sexually transmitted infection, monkeypox is not going to be on your radar. You're going to think about things like herpes or syphilis or chancroid or chlamydia or gonorrhea long before you would ever think of monkeypox. So many individuals got a diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection, a traditional sexually transmitted infection, and did not get treatment or diagnosis for monkeypox, which then allowed the virus to spread. We don't know if this is sexually transmitted or just sexually associated. Obviously when people have sexual relations with each other, there is close contact. So this clearly is sexually associated. There is some evidence that it might be transmitting sexually. They found the virus in bodily fluids, but that, that science has yet to been complete. But the thing is, is that because it was presenting in a way that people had never seen it present before, yeah. that led to a delay in recognizing that the problem existed and how big the problem was, and we've been playing catch-up ever since because of those early uh, diagnoses that that were missed and allowed the virus to spread. How
1: much does the fact that this is occurring on the heels of COVID-19, how much has that affected uh, the global and national response to monkeypox?
7: Many of us thought that we would be able to control monkeypox much easier than has been the case, because this is a disease that we've known about for decades, for which we have off-the-shelf vaccines, antivirals, tests. This is not a very contagious disease. It requires close contact. It's not transmissible during its incubation period, as far as we know. So this should have been something that was easy to quash. And I think the fact that this is happening on the heels of COVID-19, where we saw systemic failures in containment that that, yeah. that that really is not reassuring. It really makes me think that we need a wholesale reevaluation of how we respond to infectious disease emergencies because clearly we're not up to the task. This should have been something that was very easy. one other aspect of it is that we know that our public health agencies are overworked, they're understaffed and under-resourced, but and, and they've burned out because of COVID-19. And these are the same people who have to now organize testing, vaccine clinics. Uh, And a lot of public information campaigns for monkeypox, at the same time, they're still responding to COVID-19 and still feeling the after effects of that enormous response over the past two years.
1: Dr. Adolja, in about 30 seconds, in your judgment, how concerned should the average American be about this?
7: There is a tendency post-COVID-19 to look at every infectious disease emergency through the the lens of COVID-19. That would be wrong. Each infectious disease has its own transmission characteristics, its own level of contagiousness. And monkeypox is something that is not contagious in the way that a respiratory virus is contagious. This is something we have tools that we can stop, stop it with. The goal is really just to get those tools to be deployed competently without the bureaucracy and red tape that has hampered this response. Mm-hmm. I think this is something that can be contained, but only if the government acts as it needs to be, uh, responsive to the people on the ground that are actually combating this.
1: Dr. Amish Adulja, thanks so much for your time.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up, Erwin Lutzer has written a new book in which he argues Christians don't need to hide. He's going to join us next, and we're going to have a great conversation about why not. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
6: What is biblical masculinity?
2: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
0: Welcome back
1: to Washington Watch. I'm just back home sitting at the Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can watch this and every episode of Washington Watch whenever it's most convenient for you. If you are a high school or university student, please join us for a free worldview session at the Pray, Vote Stand Summit that will be happening in Atlanta, Georgia, from September 14th through the 16th. On September 16th, from 4 to 7, we're going to have a special worldview session for high school and college students. I will be there doing an introduction to worldview. We will also have a 90-minute Ask Anything Q&A session where you can, as the name suggests, Ask Anything about the culture, worldview, your faith, the intersection between those things. It's gonna be a great time. Look forward to having you there. Make sure you go register at prayvotestand.org slash summit, both for the summit itself as well as the free worldview session for college and high school kids. Look forward to seeing you there. Make no mistake, that which is canceled today will be criminalized tomorrow. This provocative statement, is from the upcoming book, No Reason to Hide, by Dr. Edwin Lutzer. The book's subtitle, Why Bible-Believing Christians Must Stand for Truth in a Darkening Culture, could be a slogan for what we believe here at FRC and Washington Watch. Now, this book deals with 10 pressure points at which believers clash with the culture and proclaims we must speak with compassionate clarity (laughs) about the issues of the day. Joining me now to discuss His upcoming book is Dr. Edwin Lutzer. He's the pastor emeritus and formerly senior pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago for 36 years. Dr. Lutzer, great to have you today.
8: I'm so glad to be with you. And of course, the work that you are doing is so critical. Christians have to realize that even though we are gospel-centered, the simple fact is that people today are looking for answers, and we have to help them think through the issues that they are facing. And that's why I wrote the book that you referenced entitled, No Reason to Hide.
1: Well, you are very kind and and we are indeed endeavoring today and every day to help people think a bit more clearly about a world that is indeed very confusing. And I wanna talk about some of the, uh, the, the great points that you make in your book. And one of the things that you say to start this off is you say that today, those who claim to be tolerant actually seek to be dominant. What do you mean by that?
8: Well, the simple fact is the word tolerance has many different meanings. And in the minds of the left, tolerance does mean dominance. If you don't come along with their agenda, they will call you intolerant. And, of course, what they don't recognize is that they are intolerant they are unwilling to accept a different viewpoint. And that's why I discuss such things, of course, as the cancel culture. More than that, you know, speaking of dominance, I point out today that if you were to ask for a job or apply for a job, even if it's teaching chemistry in a university, you would be asked whether or not you feel comfortable with the whole LGBTQ agenda. Are you comfortable with multiple pronouns? So, The culture has certain cultural streams, and those who claim to be tolerant are the ones that are intolerant of anyone who doesn't go along with their agenda.
1: I I think there are many examples of that. In, In your experience, Dr. Lutzer, how did this come to be? Well, you know, we often
8: talk about cultural Marxism, but it is really true. Cultural Marxism says that we can bring about a Marxist country if we capture the institutions of the United States, such as education, the arts, the media, the values, and so forth. And so what you have is, this has been being taught in the universities in our country for a long time. It now filters down to the reality that parents are facing in terms of schools i make the point that a teacher here in the school system of chicago told me that he it was not necessary he said for him to only tolerate same-sex marriage if he didn't celebrate it he might lose his job dr that's a line in the sand and yeah. what we have to do is to help Christians to stand in and say, "I will not go and cross that line
1: Dr. Luer, you use the term cultural marxism we've we've heard that uh, thrown about in a lot of dialogue. What do you mean when you say that? Well, it is
8: the seeping in of Marxism, but not the kind of Marxism in Russia which brought about a revolution or in China but the slow march through all the institutions and that's what we see happening today and of course words are misused I have an entire chapter on how language is misused today let's take the word equality you have equality is a perfectly good word but what you do is you have it applied to marriage marriage equality well you and I know that those are two things that are not equal it's not equal to say that two men living together are a marriage. But in our world today, language is used in order to propagate an agenda. So what we have to do, according to them, is to tear down our history, vilify the United States, and then build a whole new system based on a humanistic slash Marxist view, And... You know, it's so important in these literatures that are being written in these things, there is never a comparison with America to other countries. It's hard to get people to hate America if um, you compare it with other countries. So America is vilified. And that, of course, is what causes a lot of university students to go the wrong direction. So it's the revamping of culture along marxist lines
1: and and to try to get a bit more clarity on that how would you distinguish between something that you would describe as cultural marxism as compared to something that you just think is a bad idea
8: well first of all let me say that um, ideas have consequences and you have heard it said bad ideas have bad consequences The reason that we can sometimes uh, can't distinguish between a bad idea and Marxism is because many people who accept Marxist ideas that are bad do not necessarily trace it to Marx. And so we must recognize that it is uh, the way in which the culture is set up. We have a lot of bad ideas out there, but I need to emphasize an idea does not need to work in order for it to survive it only has to sound good and that's why marxism has survived and as i say it filters down in race i have two chapters in my book on race it filters down in our understanding of language you know i just want to throw this in one of the universities that i quote has a language code and uh, It says that you can't use the word freshman. You can't use victim. It goes on to ban certain words. And then it says, if there is a a barbershop in your area, don't say that he takes in walk-ins because it might offend those who can't walk, those who are in the wheelchair. Now, what's the purpose of this? The purpose is not to elevate the conversation. The purpose is to silence the conversation. You have no idea what's appropriate. And so there are various ways, and Marx would be totally in favor of that. In fact, I've argued elsewhere that Marx was so opposed to freedom of speech because the capitalists would always take advantage of it. So what he is saying is it's time for those who have traditional values to be quiet And now it's time for the oppressed to speak. And the way we treat you is we silence you by these kinds of codes. So I know we've gone around a lot of different topics here, but there is coherence. Marxism basically says we have to destroy the foundations of Christianity and the foundations of capitalism and everything needs to be rebuilt and uh, on a Marxist humanistic foundation.
1: Talking to Dr. Erwin Lutzer about his book, No Reason to Hide. And and Dr. Lutzer, you've talked about all of these bad ideas, and this may be an impossible question to answer, but of all the bad ideas that you see floating about in the uh, ideological ecosystem, do you have a sense of which one is the worst or most harmful idea?
8: Oh, yes, the most harmful is the whole transgender phenomenon. Definitely. And one of the things that parents need to do is to be able to speak to their children about this. I think it is the worst bad idea because it is is destroying our young people. You see, even young people, because we're created in God's image, have a sense of right and wrong. So they go to school, they're introduced to pornography. As a matter of fact, I have A discussion of that, particularly here in the state of Illinois, but elsewhere as to what is being taught. They're introduced to all kinds of perverse ideas regarding sexuality. So what happens? They feel guilty. They feel shame. They don't know where to turn. They are empty inside. And so somebody says, you know what the answer is to your problem? You must be trans. And so the man who, the boy who's born Bert, goes to school and says, well, I'm going to be called Bertha. And we are expected to go along with that. I I have to emphasize this. I know our time is so limited, but in George Orwell's book, 1984, Winston is taken to a back room and is taught that two plus two is equal to five. Sometimes it is equal to three, and sometimes it is both. Now, Joseph, let's think about that. I don't think that they actually thought that they could persuade him that two plus two was equal to five. They wanted him, however, to be comfortable with living with lies. Everybody knows that um, a man can't have a baby. Everybody knows that. But nonetheless, we're supposed to be comfortable in a society that's living by lies. And while I'm talking, you know, Voltaire is quoted as saying that he who gets you to believe absurdities can eventually get you to commit atrocities. So we'd better know where the lines are drawn and what we believe about these issues.
1: I think you make a really powerful point there that the point of this is not necessarily to convince people that false things are true, but to simply be silent in the face of the statement of false things and to act and behave as if they are true. Now, Dr. Lutzer, there's so much that you get into in this book. You you pose a lot of questions for the church uh, to consider in, in the in the culture that we live in, one of which is... Will our children be indoctrinated by the enemy? I'd like to hear your perspective on the role you think education plays in what we're dealing with culturally and what the right way for the church to respond to the education dilemma is.
8: Well, first of all, you asked about cultural Marxism a little while ago. Marx believed, and Lenin was equally clear, that education is too important a job to leave to parents. So as a result, they believe not in public schools, but state-sponsored schools. Why? So that the children would be, learn uh, not to be oppressed, because after all, the family has to be destroyed because men oppress their wives, parents oppress their children, they take them to church. God, of course, is the ultimate oppressor. So education, therefore, has now fallen into the hands of leftists. And I want to say to the parents, and this speaks directly to your issue, God God is going to hold you accountable for the education of your children, and that's why I advocate strongly if possible. Perhaps they should be homeschooled. There are also faith-based schools. If that is impossible, what you need to do is to make sure that you stay on top of what they're being taught in our public schools, because it does depend on the school. There's still some public schools who believe in a uh, relative amount of decency and uh, core values. Right. But you need to stay on top of that because someday God is going to hold you accountable for that. And our greatest legacy is going to be lived out in our children. My heart breaks. I weep for the children of this nation.
1: Dr. Lutzer, you also, in in your book, uh, talk about the fact that Christians need to accept the blessing of suffering, and you talk about that as part of discipleship. Why do you think that's so important today?
8: Because the average American believes this, that if we were really faithful to God, we'd always live with freedom. We'd have governments that are supportive of Christianity and so forth. Well, we've had that in the past. But I have to say that when you study church history, that kind of an arrangement is very rare. Church history is filled with a suffering church. And what I say in that chapter is we have to rethink this, and we have to come to the conclusion that indeed correctly understood suffering for Christ can be a blessing. Listen to the words of Jesus. Blessed are you. When men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, great is your reward. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. The Apostle Paul says, to this you were called, not only to believe in him, we love that part, but also to suffer for his name. So we as Americans who've had it so easy, relatively speaking, we need to rethink what suffering for Jesus Christ really means and suffer well, because actually, as I show, it becomes a stepping stone to a new kind
0: of gospel
8: witness.
1: Unfortunately, I must cut you off because we are out of time. He is Dr. Lutzer. The book is No Reason to Hide. Pick it up. It is uh, fascinating and encouraging. Thanks for your time.
8: Thanks and God bless.
1: And that's a great reminder, the blessing of suffering as we go home today about what we are called to. He is with us, which is why we can fear God and nothing else. We'll see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com.